0: All right, all right. Well, hey, welcome to Sojourn. Uh, glad that you're here this morning. It's good to see you guys chatting up with each other and uh, hopefully meeting some new folks or, or greeting those that you know uh, already. But it's just good to gather with you every week. I always look forward to our time together, uh, singing along with you, reading God's word together, and now opening up God's word and and uh, placing ourselves under it as we, as we see what God has to say to us this morning as we look at his scriptures. So, so we preach from the Bible every week at Sojourn. We're in a series right now where we are uh, looking at different texts and passages uh, in the books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And so if you need a Bible this morning, would you just raise your hand? Uh, we'd love to give you one so that you can read along with us this morning. And, uh, and man, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, of the scriptures, of the Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take that home. Uh, it's like our gift to you. Uh, we are here to, to preach God's Word, and we want you to be able to read it throughout the week as well. Uh, so if you don't own a, a copy of the Bible, please feel free to take one with you. You know, in life, do you ever feel like sometimes you just kind of do things, kind of go through the motions of something, but aren't really sure why you do it, you don't think much about it? Just the, the normal routines of life, right? I mean, you have like your, your bedtime routine, you always do it the same way, right? I mean, just the how you get ready for bed each night or in the morning, you kind of have the same routine maybe in the morning. If you have kids, that's a big deal to have a routine with your kids. You know, we always, at night with our kids, we, we do the same kind of thing. We get ready for bed and brush teeth and we read a story and we sing a couple of songs and we pray together uh, before we go to bed. It's the same thing every night. But we don't really think much about the routines of our life. And that's an that's all of life. Uh, and so if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have a spiritual life, what you call a spiritual life, the same thing can happen in our spiritual life as well. You don't ever really feel like you're knowing or thinking about what you're doing, just kind of going through the motions of your spiritual life. And, and I think at times, all of us go through that. We all go through those times. If we're followers of Christ, as we try to walk with Jesus, as we try to live life with Him, there's aspects and times and moments in our lives that we're just kind of going through the motions without ever really thinking about why we're doing what we're doing or what it is that we're actually engaging in. Whether it's gathering with the church. We may gather with the church. All of us are here this morning, but how many of us really thought about what we were doing as we got in the car and drove here this morning? We may read our Bibles, but sometimes we are doing it just because, hey, that's what we're supposed to do. It's what the pastor told me to do or my community group is encouraging me to do. We may give, but only because that's what my parents taught me or what I saw them doing as I grew up, or because I went to a membership class and they t- told me that's a good thing for us to do, and so I, I do that. We may sing the songs. We, we sing the, the songs and the, the words that are on the screen, and we, and we sing those, but we're not really thinking much about the words that are coming out of our mouths as we do that. Now listen, all routine is not... Bad. It's okay to have routine in life. In fact, a lot of times in life, routine can be a helpful thing even in our spiritual life because it provides some, some discipline, it provides some structure to our lives. But the problem is is sometimes we allow the routine to be the focus instead of seeing it as a tool to help us. And when this happens in our spiritual lives, all these good things that God's given to us, all these kind of what we call means of grace to help us to know him better, to help us to live our life under his lordship, and follow him in every aspect of our life, we get focused on the aspect of that means of grace, just the routine of it, and not really thinking about what it's actually trying to do with the importance and power of it in our own life. Sojourn, we're a church, which means that we are a worshiping community of people who are called to love God and love others. But what does it really look like? What does it really mean for us not to allow the routine of being the church, of gathering together, even here on a Sunday morning, seeking the Lord to become just a rote activity for us? It's just every seven days we gather together again and we don't think much about it. We're just going through the motions What does it look like? What does it mean to instead have a thriving, faithful worship as a church as we gather together, but also a faithful and thriving worship just in our individual lives? How do we keep from it becoming just mere routine, but instead see it as a joy to worship the Lord? See it as a gift from God to be able to do that. We're in this series talking about being a faithful church. And so if we're going to be a faithful church, we must have faithful worship. Worship. We're a worshiping community, so our worship needs to be faithful. And today, we're going to look at a text that I, that I hope, that I really believe uh, is going to drive us towards that. It's going to help us to wrap our minds and our hearts around what it means to be a faithful church who has faithful worship, both as a community and as individuals. So let's pray and ask God this morning as we open up his word just to help us to become the faithful worshipers he longs for us and desires for us to be. So let's pray together. Father, I give you thanks this morning that as we come now to open up your word and, and to, to listen to your word preached, Lord, I, I just even thinking about this morning and what we've already done together, what we've already participated in together, listening to your word read, reading your word aloud together, having your word read over us, singing songs about your grace about the gospel. Lord, you're you're priming the pump this morning for us as we start to talk about worship. And so Lord, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you would draw our hearts and our minds to attention to you, that we would pay attention to you, be attentive to your spirit this morning and what you're speaking to us. Would you encourage every single person in this room this morning? Would you do a work that only you can do? Father, I am weak and unable my own strength and ability to accomplish anything this morning. And so I lay this down before you today and pray and beg your spirit to do a work that only you can do. That today, even as we sit here now, we might be worshiping you as your word is preached. Help us, Father, through this time to become more faithful worshipers so that we might be a faithful church here in Fairfax in Northern Virginia. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to look at about six verses this morning, starting in verse 12 uh, and reading through verse 17. So go ahead and and flip there if you haven't already. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. And this is what he says, starting in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and as we've talked about over the last few weeks, the, these letters he's writing is seeking to encourage Timothy and to exhort him to be faithful. Timothy's a leader in the church, and he's leading in, in the local church. And so Paul's writing these letters to him, first and second Timothy. He's writing a similar letter to, to Titus, another young leader in the church, to encourage them to remain faithful, to, to lead out of faithfulness, to be faithful to the gospel. There are false teachers and cultural pressures and challenges from outside and challenges within that are seeking to pull Timothy away from Jesus. To pull Timothy away from faithfulness and to pull the church that Timothy is leading in away from the gospel. And so Paul's encouraging him to be faithful to that calling. So as we're jumping in here in chapter 1, what we see is Paul's beginning this letter of, of, of encouragement and exhortation to Timothy to hold on to the true gospel. And he says in verse 11 that Paul himself was entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Paul was entrusted with good news, good news that the holy God of all creation is a redeeming God. And he has come to redeem redeem a lost and broken world in and through Jesus. So as Paul makes this statement to Timothy, as he's thinking about writing this letter to Timothy, calling him to faithfulness, calling him to hold on to Jesus, what we see is Paul kind of takes a a little bit of a tangent here in verse 12. It causes him to start to reflect on the fact that he says, wait a minute, God, the God of all creation has entrusted me with the gospel. Man, that's crazy. So Paul starts to think about the good work that God has done in his own life, in his own journey it's God's redeeming grace has come to bear on Paul. Paul says in verse 12 that he gives thanks to Jesus Christ who has given him strength. Strength for what? Strength to hold on to the gospel, strength to, to remain faithful to what God has called him to do, to to, which is to make much of Jesus. Jesus has enabled Paul to be faithful. He's enabled Paul to be a man who can be entrusted with the message of the gospel. Paul was not faithful on his own. It wasn't like Jesus looked at Paul and said, Paul, you're going to be a great asset to my team. You're doing a great job out there, and so I just want to acknowledge that. I'm going to hook you up. I'm going to make you a good leader in my church, and I'm going to allow you to continue on the track of being a powerful man in my church. No, that's not what was going on. It's quite the opposite for Paul. Paul says, Jesus has made me a messenger of his grace, not because I was awesome, not because I had it all together, but because he's a redeeming God. He did this in spite of my sin, in spite of my shame. Paul reflects on the fact that he's entrusted with this message of the gospel to be a faithful leader in God's church, but then he remembers the fact that he had no faith in God at one point. He says, I was a blasphemer. I spoke against God. I was an enemy of God. I didn't speak well of God. I didn't worship him. I worshiped myself. Paul thought he was an awesome guy because he had all these accolades and a long resume that he thought was great and it made much of him. He was a blasphemer against God. Paul was a persecutor of Jesus's people. Paul didn't like Jesus. He didn't have even mediocre warm feelings towards Jesus. He hated Jesus and he hated Jesus's people. He sought to drag them out of but get their gatherings and have them thrown in jail and even see some of them killed. He so hated Jesus. Paul was an insolent, violent opponent to Christ. He wanted to do anything and everything to destroy Jesus and his church. So this is not a stellar resume to, to take on the position of lead missionary in Jesus' church. It's not like you saw a posting somewhere and said, man, that sounds like a good job for me. I need to change up my career a little bit. I'd like to travel. I want to be a lead missionary. I'll submit my resume. If he submitted his life to this, it doesn't match up very well. See, Paul hated the gospel. He hated Jesus. He hated Jesus' people. Maybe some of you sitting here today feel the same way. You don't have fond feelings towards God or towards Jesus or towards the church or towards Jesus' people. But I'm glad you're here today, because I hope Paul's story resonates with you. Because see, even as Paul hated Jesus and hated Jesus' church, what he said is what he says is that he received mercy. He received mercy from God. He, He didn't get what he deserved. He said he acted in ignorance and unbelief. He thought he was doing a good service for God by seeking to destroy Jesus' church. But God, in his mercy, revealed to Paul that he wasn't actually serving God. He was rebelling against God. God pulled back the veil over Paul's heart and over his eyes to reveal to him he actually has a deep need for a Savior, and not just any Savior, but the Savior who he's railing so hard against. It was God's mercy to Paul to pull that back to help him to see that. He didn't give him what he deserved. But God didn't just give Paul mercy. He also poured out his grace on him. Look at verse 14 again. He received mercy. Then verse 14 it says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Earlier this year, I, I spent some time with some of my best friends from college. These guys I, I've known for uh, about 16 years, and, and we get together every year uh, just to spend some time with one another. We want to stay involved in each other's lives, and these, these men have been instrumental in my own life. And, and so we get together every year and do that kind of move around to different places uh, where each person lives. And so this year, uh, we were in Knoxville, Tennessee, where, where one of uh, these guys lives. And so one evening, uh, we decided to hop in the car and we drove up to a, a place called Norris Dam. It, it's it's uh, on uh, it's in, in Tennessee obviously right outside Knoxville. It's part of the kind of TVA system of a huge hydroelectric dam that, that powers much of the Tennessee Valley and other parts of the Southeast. And so we drove up to this dam and we I mean you can get right up next to it. And so we we parked and we got out and we stood by the river and just looked up at this dam I and mean, this thing is huge. it's, it's just this massive dam but then we got in the car and we drove up to the top and you can actually walk across it and so we got up and and we looked out and on on one side of the dam is Norris Lake where the dam has kept the water it's made this huge lake some 34,000 acres of water surface make up Norris Lake on the other side of the dam far below is the Clinch River and the Clinch River eventually flows into the Tennessee River now, this dam was built in the 30s. And so as I'm standing up on top of this, thinking about the fact that this was built in the 30s, I thought, man, what would happen if this thing just broke right now and just cracked open? As you're looking down, this sheer face of this dam with all this water behind, what would happen if this thing just broke and suddenly the water of Norris Lake just rushed down this river? Man, it would destroy everything in its path. It would crush everything in its path. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 14. He stood in the path of a flood of grace, a torrent of grace. It was as if he's standing at the bottom of that dam and it broke open and it just water just poured out on Paul. Paul was an enemy of God. He was living in direct opposition to God. He deserved death but got mercy. He deserved death and God's wrath but got grace instead. And it overflowed to Paul. It wasn't just a trickle of grace. God didn't just kind of get a a little spoonful of grace and kind of dollop it out for Paul. He didn't give him just a little bit of grace and and say, well, I'll give you a little bit. I want to see what you do with it first before I give you more of it. No, God lavished his grace on Paul. He unleashed his grace on Paul. The floodgates opened. The dam broke, and a crushing waterfall of grace overwhelmed Paul's sin. The dam broke, and the immensity of God's grace crushed Paul. See, God was not only merciful, saving, God, saving Paul from his sin and not pouring out his righteous wrath on Paul. God is holy and he is just and he is perfect. And so any rebellion against God is sin. And what that deserves is death. And what it deserves is God's righteous wrath. God showed Paul mercy by saving him from that, not pouring that out. But God also poured out his grace on Paul instead. He gave him what he didn't deserve. He made him his own child. He transformed Paul's heart and his life. He united Paul to the very Savior that Paul used to hate. See, that's grace. God gave Paul what he absolutely did not deserve, and Paul knew it. He knew it. He says, I can't be flippant about the fact that God has entrusted this gospel to me because I know who I was. God gave Paul the faith to believe, to trust in Christ, where there was once only unbelief and ignorance and faithlessness. God gave Paul his love and cultivated a love within Paul for Christ where there once had only been hate and disdain for Jesus. God gave Paul grace and it radically changed Paul's life because that's what God's grace does. When the floodgates are open and the dam breaks and God's grace overflows to you, it crushes you. It crushes you. It takes the old you with all of your rebellion and all of your sin and all of your misplaced worship and all of your self-focus and it destroys you. But in destroying you, it gives you life. Because it saves you from yourself. It saves you from yourself and it makes you a new creation The old is gone, and the new has come. See, as you pass through the water of God's grace, you are cleansed and raised to new life. Grace changes everything for you when you experience it. And So this leads Paul to make one of the most important and clear statements in the New Testament. Look at verse 15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And here's the saying, That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Here's a faithful saying. Here's something you can bank on. Here's something you can believe in. Here's a truth you can accept. Do you want to know who Jesus is and why Jesus matters? This is it, because Jesus came to save sinners. In Luke 19, Jesus himself says, look, I came to seek and to save the lost. That's why I'm here. He's the good shepherd who comes after his wandering sheep and, and brings us home at the expense of his own life. But, church, this morning we have to realize Jesus didn't come to save just little sinners. He came to save the worst of sinners. He came to save the worst of sinners. And Paul says, That's me. I am the worst of sinners. And he came to save the worst of sinners, not when they were looking to be saved. Paul had a mission. He was on the road to Damascus in in modern-day Syria, seeking to destroy Jesus' church. And Jesus instead came to Paul and destroyed Paul. Not with wrath, with grace. Taking him, overwhelming him, saving him, forgiving him, changing him, and making him a minister of his gospel and an ambassador of grace and reconciliation. That's what grace does. It crushes you, it destroys you, and it makes you new. Because of what Jesus has done, what he's accomplished. Dying a death on a cross that all of us deserve. Dying in the place of sinners and rising again to defeat death. What's clear from Paul's story is that God steps in and does what no one deserves or no one can do on their own. He gives mercy. He gives grace. He gives salvation. He gives life where once there was only death and destruction. The good news for us this morning, the good news for our city, the good news for this world is that Paul's story is not unique to Paul. It's not unique to Paul. No, it's an example of who God is and what God does for people just like Paul. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy, Paul says, for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Paul says, I'm the worst sinner As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The story of God's grace in Paul's life, the fact that God would save Paul, Paul, who was essentially a terrorist towards Jesus' church, towards Jesus' people, was not just for Paul, it was for you and for me. See, the story of God's grace in Paul's life says to all of us today that are sitting here, to those of us who've already experienced God's grace, who've trusted in Christ, or to those of us this morning that I hope will experience God's grace even today, it says to us that God's grace is sufficient for all people. Paul says, I'm the foremost sinner, the lead sinner, the biggest sinner, and God saved me. So guess what? That means God can save you too. God can save you too, no matter what you've done no matter what's going on in your life, even what happened yesterday, what happened 20 years ago in your life, God's grace can overcome. If you've sinned sexually, giving yourself to someone who's not your spouse or taking from someone who's not your spouse, God's grace can overwhelm your sin. If you've had an abortion, God's grace can overwhelm your sin. If you've lied or cheated, God's grace can overwhelm your sin. If you've hated or killed, God's grace can overwhelm your sin. If you've been an abuser in word or deed, God's grace can overwhelm your sin. If you've been greedy with the things God's given to you, God's grace can overwhelm your sin. If you've been addicted to something... God's grace can overwhelm your sin. If you've been angry, God's grace can overwhelm your sin. If you've been prideful, God's grace can overwhelm your sin. If you've cared about and loved yourself more than you love and care about other people, God's grace can overwhelm your sin. If you've worshiped anyone or anything besides God, and guess what? That's all of us. God's grace can overwhelm your sin. See, here's the reality for every single person in this room this morning, every single person in this city, every single person in this world. We are all the worst of sinners because we've all sinned. We've all sought to to steal God's glory, to take his glory away from him and place it on ourselves. And so we all deserve God's wrath and justice because all sin is rebellion against the one true God. But Jesus But Jesus, Jesus went to the cross for you. We sang about this this morning. When you you think about the cross, when you think about what Jesus has done, do you just think about, well, Jesus died for sin? Or do you think about the reality, the fact that Jesus died for your sin? That it was your sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And Jesus was crushed so you don't have to be. He was crushed, so you get to be crushed by grace and not what you deserve. See, Paul is an example to us this morning and to this world that God's grace can reach anyone. Anyone. It can overwhelm and crush the ISIS fighter on that same dusty road heading into Damascus. It can change his heart and change his life. God's grace can overwhelm your neighbor right now who says that she hates God. She doesn't believe in God, and it can change her heart, change her life today. It can overwhelm you as you sit in your seat right now, thinking that I don't believe in God, I hate God, or man, God can never love somebody like me. It can overwhelm you today, and it can change your heart and change your life today. God's grace is sufficient for anyone. Do you believe that this morning? See, verses 15 and 16 are some of the most encouraging verses in all of Scripture because what they tell us is that no one is too far gone for God's grace. No one's too far gone. So let me ask you this morning, have you experienced this grace? Have you experienced it? Have you been crushed by it yet? As if you're standing at the bottom of a dam, And it just breaks open and just crushes you. Seeing the old pass away and the new come. Have you experienced that this morning? Because God's invitation to you today is to trust in Jesus. Believing that he died for you so that you can be God's forgiven and set free. And I hope, and I've been praying for this, I hope for some of you today sitting here in this room right now that the dam has broken this morning for you. That the immensity of God's grace is overwhelming you right now as you sit in your seat. Knowing that this is available to you in Christ. Will you trust in Jesus today? Will you trust in Christ today? Because the saying is trustworthy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Sojourn, this is our only hope in life and death. Now you may be thinking talking about faithful worship this morning what in the world does this have to do with worship what does this have to do with being a church that's a faithful church with faithful worship brothers and sisters that has everything to do with it because here's the deal meditation on the gospel of grace is the only thing that will lead us to faithful worship it's the only thing that will lead us to faithful worship When we say worship, at a base level, worship is giving praise, it's giving adoration, it's giving honor to someone or something. And all of us do that. All of us in our life give our worship to something. We we give praise to something, something we own, something we have, someone we know. But true worship, faithful worship, is worship that's given to God alone. Because God alone is the one that deserves our worship. It's giving adoration and honor and praise and glory to God for who he is and what he's done. And when we understand God for who he he is and what he's done, it's then that we can truly worship him in all of life. We can't help but worship him in all of life. Look at what happens right after Paul reflects on God's grace in his own life and to the world. Look at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, when Paul thinks about who God is, when he thinks about what God has done in Paul's life, and then he thinks about that that grace is sufficient for all of the world, it leads Paul to worship. As he thinks about his own life, his past and his present, and the immensity of God's grace that's been shown to him, not only on the first day he believed, but every day since then, he can't help but think, Notice what he does. He doesn't think about God's imminence. He doesn't think about God's closeness. He thinks about how huge God is, his transcendence, his otherness. He says all glory and honor should be given to the king of ages or to the eternal king, the king who is the king over everything forever. All glory and honor should be given to God who's immortal, who's not subject to death or decay or corruptibility. He's unending. All glory and honor should be given to the God who's invisible, the God who's other, the one who we can't put in a box and explain away or wrap our minds around. All glory and honor should be given to the only God. See, as Paul thinks about his sin and thinks about who God is, what he does is he worships because he understands both the seriousness of his sin and the surety of his salvation at the very same time. See, God is transcendent. He's other, yet God is a God who intervenes in this world to save sinners. Sojourn. That deserves our worship this morning. That deserves our worship. And faithful worship flows from a faithful understanding of who God is and what he's done. But here's the problem for all of us. As we go through life even as we gather as the church, it's easy for us to forget who God is and forget what God has really done. I know this for my own life, and I believe it to be true for, for most of us, if we're honest, is that we are all tempted to see our sin as small. We see it as small, as, as, as inconsequential. It's not really that big of a deal in the first place. I mean, what I do, what I think, is what everybody else does and thinks. It can't be that bad. And I'm not like that guy over there. I haven't done the things that he's done. I haven't said the things that she's said before. What I do is not really that big of a deal. God can't care that much. And see, the world around us encourages us to think the same way. Today, we're challenged not to talk about sin very much, or at least not to make that big of a deal of it, because we don't want to make people feel bad. We don't make anybody feel bad. If we talk about sin, if we talk about how we're Separated from God, if we talk about God's holiness and our unholiness, God's righteousness and our unrighteousness, that's going to make us all feel bad. But sojourn, when we see our sin is small, what happens is we see our Savior is small. We see our Savior is small, and when he's small in our life, he doesn't seem very worthy of our worship. We, We take Jesus and we reduce him down to kind of little tiny back pocket Jesus kind of stick them in our back pocket, get them out when we need a little pick-me-up, need a little help with something, and then we stick them back in our pocket again. Tiny sin, tiny Jesus. Tiny sin, tiny Savior. And we have a tiny Savior. He doesn't seem very worthy of our worship, and so what happens is we're quickly captivated by the things the world offers us to worship. Yeah, I give a little bit of worship to Jesus, but I give a whole lot of worship to a whole lot of other things because I don't recognize the immensity of what Christ has done for me. And very quickly, our worship becomes empty in life because it has no lasting foundation. But, but, if we see our sin as great because we understand how holy and awesome our God is, then we very quickly see our Savior as great. And when our Savior is great, he engulfs us with, our, with his presence, He engulfs us with his presence, just like that dam breaking over us. And and we can't help but worship anything. We don't want to worship anyone or anything else. We are blown away by what Christ was done. It's almost spontaneous, a spontaneous reaction. Paul's reflecting on God's grace in his life. He's remembering what God has done for him. And he just like bursts into worship. He doesn't have to prep himself for that. It just overflows in Paul's life. See, we're not talking about music We're not talking about outward things, like the environment has to be perfectly right, and if I'm feeling in the mood to worship, then I'll give it to him. No, when Paul thinks about God's grace, when he sees his sin as great and his Savior as greater than that, he just overflows in worship. See, if we're worried about worship and our lives being mere routine, not a joy, not a gift, we have to come back and assess our own hearts and our own lives and realize maybe the problem is I'm not seeing my sin for as significant as it actually is. Reduce my Savior down to just a little tiny Jesus I can stick in my pocket and pull out when I need him. That's what we see Paul doing, and that's what we must do if we're going to be a faithful church with faithful worship. Just this past week, I was working through an exercise to address the issues of my own heart and my own life. And one of the things I did is I sat down, and I was just acknowledging my sin and seeing it in light of who God is. See, sometimes I think what we do is we start to think about our sin and then we quickly move on. We don't stop and slow down enough to see it in light of who God is. I have to be really honest, it was super difficult because as I, thought, as I sat there and thought about my sin, I realized how disgusting it is, how stupid it is, how sickening, how gross it is when I look at it in light of God in his perfection, in his holiness, in all that he's done in my life. And I sit there and say, this is terrible. I hate this. But then by God's grace in my mind and my heart, I said, my sin is great, yet Jesus. Yet Jesus. He came to rescue me. He died for me, and I can't wrap my mind around it. Nothing in me deserves his rescuing. Nothing in me deserves his redemption. Yet, God, you give it freely to me. You give it freely to me and complete me completely, and it's unfathomable. I can't wrap my mind around it. It's overwhelming. It's otherworldly. Jesus, you died for me. He died for all my heinous sin, all my gross and disgusting and ridiculous sin in my life. Every single sin, every single aspect of my unbelief, every aspect of false worship and idolatry, every ounce of it has been nailed to the cross. Here's the reality. I didn't put it there. I said, Jesus, will you take this for me? I didn't put it there. The Father gave it to Jesus. And Jesus willingly took it before I was even born, before I had even sinned. Jesus paid for all of it. He took all of it, everything. And when I stop to think about that, it's absolutely un- amazing. I, I, just, I, can't even, I can't even think about it. It's hard for me to even understand. It's so insane. His grace towards me. And That's the beauty of God's grace. Is this, it's not just a little bit for you and a little bit for me. It is unending It's not just for the beginning of the journey, it's for every step along the way. Because the reality of your life and my life is that as we still exist here and as we wait for Jesus to return, we will struggle with sin. But the truth of the gospel says to you this morning God still gives more grace to you. There's always more grace to flow, it never runs out. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to lift my hands and say yes and amen. And in other moments in my life, it makes me want to sit quietly. And in my heart, say, praise you, God. Praise you for God for saving a wretch like me. See, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't feel shame for our failures, our falterings, and our face plants in life. But instead, we can say, this is who I was. And at times, the old me likes to pop itself back up again in my life, but this is what my God has done he has rescued me, even me. He's made me his child and he is changing me to be more like his son. And it was always forever by grace. I didn't do anything. I can't do anything to make it happen. I didn't do anything to deserve it. And so because of this, I don't boast in myself, but only him who saved me. All praise and honor and glory be the only God who redeems and restores through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, in Paul's personal reflection of personal grace, he responds and prays in a way that invites all who've experienced it to join in and say amen. And sojourn, that's us. As Paul says amen in verse 17, he's inviting us to say yes and amen with him. That's what amen means. Amen means yes. Yes, it's true. I believe that. It's okay for us to say amen when we hear the word preached. Yeah, there we go. It's okay to say amen when we sing songs. We say, yes, I believe that to be true this morning. You don't have to say it outwardly, but you can. You can say it with your heart, though, to say, man, I believe this to be true this morning as we meditate on God's grace towards us in Christ. So what does that mean for us as a church this morning? You know, One of the aspects of our vision for us as a church is that Sojourn Church exists to glorify God We we exist to glorify God, to worship God, to give honor and glory to him. And we do that by making disciples, people whose lives have been transformed by God's grace, who now know Jesus, disciples who know the gospel, who know the gospel. If we're going to be a faithful church who has faithful worship, we have to be people who know the gospel, and reflect on the gospel often as we gather together here on Sunday mornings, as we meet up in community groups throughout the week, and just as we exist as individuals in our lives, we have to come back to that. Because thriving, faithful worship will exist, and we are reminded of and refreshed in the immensity of grace that's available to us in and through Jesus. And sojourn, all of life is an opportunity for our worship, Every morning when we wake up, no matter what happened the day before, we can be reminded that there is still more grace for us and that God's mercies are new every morning. That he will never leave us or forsake us. He is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, and to him alone be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. We can say that every day when we wake up and we live our lives. All of life is an opportunity for worship, to give praise to God, because as we reflect on God's grace, we realize that everything that we do, whether eating or drinking, working, parenting, serving, our finances, our relationships, our driving, our striving, is all an opportunity to give glory and honor to God, who alone deserves it because of the torrent of grace he's poured out on us. You you can't do anything to honor Christ except by his grace that he's given to you. And so every day when you wake up, you can say, praise you God for that. All of opportunities in life for worship. Sojourn, let your life be your amen. Let your life be your amen. Striving by grace to see the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart be pleasing to your Lord, your rock and your Redeemer. But sojourn, God didn't just save you as an individual. He saved you as an individual and he brought you into a family. He brought you to be a part of a community. And God in his good design calls us to gather together regularly as his people. To be physically present with one another. Not virtually present. But to be physically present with one another. To sit next to one another on a Sunday morning. To listen to one another sing He called us to be physically present with one another. Why? Because as one pastor says, corporate worship, meaning us gathering together. What we're doing here this morning, corporate worship is meant to so enthrall you with God's grace that you want to be an instrument of that grace in the lives of others. Sojourn, and we want everything we do on a Sunday morning as we gather together to enthrall us with God's grace and everything we do to be an act and a response to that grace, to be an opportunity to say, eyes off me and eyes on him. This means that we read God's word and reminded of who God is and what he's done, just like we did this morning. We pray to be reminded of who God is and what he's done. We confess our sin To be reminded of who God is and what he's done. We preach God's word to be reminded of who God is and what he's done. We sing songs about God and to God to be reminded of who God is and what he's done. And we take communion every single week to be reminded of who God is and what he's done. Our worship gatherings are our amen. And so as we gather together. As blood-bought sons and daughters of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a family together, we say, yes, this is our God. He alone is worthy of all honor and glory and praise now and forever. And our worship is directed towards God, but it's also inclusive of one another. Because like I said, we don't gather together just as a bunch of individuals. We gather together as a family and we reflect the gospel together, the immensity of God's grace together. We're reminded it's sufficient for all of us. We don't just come here to sit in a seat as an individual on a Sunday morning. We come to gather together as a gospel community that's formed by the gospel. What this means for you is you don't come on a Sunday morning just to merely be encouraged and refreshed as an individual. You come to encourage and refresh the people people around you. Sojourn, we need each other. See, as we sing songs to God and about God, we also sing songs to one another. We also read God's word to one another. We also pray with one another this morning as we gather. Every week when we come, we're not always in a place of joy, a place of contentment, a place where we're full of faith and resting in grace. Some of you are in that place this morning, feeling beat down by the weak, feeling like you're just struggling to believe in God or the gospel, weak in faith and joyless, and that's okay. This is exactly where you should be because there's other people around you this morning that want to remind you of the gospel. We may be struggling, but others around us can carry us along in their faith and their joy because their faith is strong this morning and they sing songs over you today when you don't feel like you can even open your mouth. This is not a place you have to come and pretend like you have it all together. It's a place you can come and allow your brothers and sisters to minister God's grace to you. We need each other, which means, listen to this, and when you're thinking about coming on Sunday morning, don't just think about yourself. Maybe you had a long night last night. Maybe it's been a long week. Maybe you just want to go do something fun. And oftentimes we just think about gathering with the church just in an individual way. But think about this. Maybe God wants you to be here on a Sunday morning, not for you, but for the person who's going to sit next to you. Because they need to be reminded that God's grace is sufficient for them. Our worship as a church and as individuals must be grounded in the truth of verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So brothers and sisters, as we've reflected on that this morning, as we've been reminded of that this morning, we're going to respond together in worship through song. We're going to sing songs about the immensity of grace that we've received in and then through Jesus. And seek to give honor and praise and glory to God alone. Brothers and sisters, let's sing loudly this morning. Not just to sing loudly, but from our hearts because we understand what God has done for us. We remember what Christ has done. And let's sing loudly this morning from our hearts to encourage one another this morning. God's grace never runs out. It's sufficient for all of us. And to begin this time of response to God's grace, we're going to come to the table. And we do this every week because we need to be reminded of grace every week. Every week we go out into the world and we struggle and we have difficulties, whether it's the world or our sin in our own lives or the lies and tactics of the enemy, to beat you down. See, the gospel is not real and God's grace is not sufficient for you. And so we need to be reminded of that. As we come to the table to eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim Christ. We preach Christ. that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are for us. We proclaim it to ourselves and to one another. It's an act of remembering and responding. It's an act of receiving and of worship. And so if you've experienced God's grace already in your life this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to think on your sin, but I want you to quickly come to the table this morning and allow grace to crush you again as if it was for the first time. And those of you that are not followers of Christ, we just ask you not to come forward this morning. Because this isn't really an act of worship for you until you've experienced that grace. So if you haven't experienced it yet, would you ask God to pour his grace out on you this morning? Would you trust in Jesus today? Recognizing that no matter what you've done in your life, no matter how much you've run away from God, that God extends his invitation to you today and says, I want to make you my son. I want to make you my daughter because of what Jesus has done for you. So just pray simply that God would save you this morning. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus today so that next week you can run to this table and you can eat this bread and drink this cup and say, yes and amen, my God saved me, even me. If you have questions about what it means to know and follow Jesus, please come talk to me after the service. I'll be hanging out here down front. I'd love to talk with you, love to pray with you. But there's so many people here this morning that would love to do that. There's a community group that would love for you to come this week just to say, hey, I don't know, I don't know about this Jesus thing man, I, I want to learn more. Then I mean, Go to a group this week so they can help you with that. That's why we're here. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready your head to the back. There's some tables in the back as well and just tear off a piece of bread. Take a small cup to drink and listen to the person in front of you and what they say to you this morning. Christ's body was broken for you. Christ's blood was shed for you. And eat and drink and celebrate this morning in worship the king of kings. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is simple this morning. Would you overwhelm us? Would you crush us this morning anew with your grace? Would you help us to understand? Would you help us to respond in the only right way, giving you worship alone? The King of the Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.